We're going to have a little uh, survey to start up with. Everyone up for that? There is no particular trick or uh, I'm not going to sneak you into something that you're not aware of. But uh, just a little, uh, little survey here. Who here has ever heard anyone kind of say the church is full of hypocrites? Anyone heard that? Excellent. Uh, quick show of hands. Who's actually said that to someone else before? Okay, a few people. Cool. Who's, um, who's ever thought it before? themselves okay who's ever thought they were one of the hypocrites they were talking about (laughs) okay all right look uh hypocrisy is uh is what we're going to talk about today because jesus talks about it in uh, mark 7 and uh, i'm probably just going to be a little bit irritating for you today because when you actually read what jesus does he's pretty irritating um and so i think to be faithful to what he said i need to be a little bit irritating that's a good excuse isn't it See, I've just, I've come up with a theology of irritation. You can use that one, all right? Jesus is irritating, so I can be irritating. No, but here's the thing. When, uh, when you're dealing with uh, people who have got issues of hypocrisy in their life, uh, they're probably either not going to see them or not want to see them, and they're going to find a little bit irritating. So sometimes I think it's a bit like that when you look at hypocrisy, because the truth is we've all kind of got some hypocrisy in our lives. Is that, everyone okay with that? And uh, hypocrisy is kind of when you're trying to be something that you're not. And humans, that's kind of the human condition. That's kind of what we do. We're, kind of, we're in a place. We know it's not a good place. So what we do is we try to make up some way to make us look like we're in a different place to what we really are. And it becomes particularly pungent um, when re- you use religion to do it. True? And people really don't like that. And do you know what? All the people that don't go to church and don't like religious hypocrites are right, right? They are really irritating and they're really painful. And that's probably the worst thing that you could do with religion is to turn it into something that you could actually use to make you look good or feel good when you're not actually like that. Anyway, that's enough of an intro. Is everyone with me so far? Cool. So I almost started this with like the old Alcoholics Anonymous thing. My name's Peter and I'm a hypocrite. And then I was going to get all you to say it, you know, and we could do that. All right, but I don't, I don't want to implicate you just yet. I may later on, but not just yet. So we're in Mark 7, and we're going to look at the anatomy of hypocrisy. So if you want to look on a screen or in a Bible, you can do that. We're going to start at verse 1 and go through to verse 23. Now, when the Pharisees, the church guys, gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, this is like another posse, right? The uh, religious guys keep setting up these posses, and their job is to go in and to find out about Jesus, and hopefully we can incriminate this guy. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And Mark's going to tell you what he's talking about. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding on to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions which they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And some of you mums probably particularly out there, you just go, yeah, it'd be good to have some religious tradition where my kids wash their hands properly. All right? (laughs) Um, anyway they've got special ways I mean it actually goes uh, into it you can actually get into it and there's a special way that you had to wash your hands too anyway we'll keep going and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat with defiled hands and he said to them well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites now it's like if you're going to go to someone to find out how to win friends and influence people it's not going to be Jesus a lot of the time okay They've come down with their posse and he just loads the gun. He just goes, I've got the rounds in there, let's let them go and see what happens. 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men, Jesus says. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honour your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Now that's a nice way to say, Are you guys like clueless? Like, have you got no idea? It's kind of, the situation here, he's out there. Jesus has said this little one-sentence parable about what can actually defile you. And they don't ask him in public. They just go, oh, Jesus, we don't really get it. And, you know, maybe they're just going, Jesus is going to go, hey, everyone, listen to these idiots. They don't understand what I just said. But they wait until they get inside the house in an intimate zone and they kind of say to Jesus, what, what, what was the deal with that? He goes, don't you guys get it? Don't you just understand it? He said to them, sorry, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Anyone get through with a clean sheet on that one? Maybe... Clean sheet for the last 10 minutes. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. In Mark 7, we see the nature of hypocrisy, the tactic of hypocrisy, the undoing of hypocrisy and the remedy for hypocrisy. What we actually see uh, first here is the nature of hypocrisy. Here's the deal. Jesus and his disciples have been associating with some dodgy people, all right? And their dodginess is actually, according to the Pharisees, has rubbed off on them. So, this is like being a blues supporter for the last eight years, okay? Which I am. Somehow, I'm a loser because my team loses. Do you get that? Or lost for eight years. Now, most Queenslanders can't remember a year ago that we actually won, by the way. I'm just putting that in there. Um, but here's the thing. Eight years, and you know what happens? Somehow, the uncleanness of the blues gets transferred onto me. Let me give you another example. There was uh, a kid when I was teaching uh, in my teaching career, which may or may not, over, may not be over, God hasn't told me yet, but at the moment it's over. There was a kid who was... He was, he was a nice kid, but he was like super irritating, like he had superhero status in terms of being irritating. And kids just didn't want to associate with him. And I remember having this class where I was talking to the kids and I, I, I was saying to the good kids, I said, you really should go and you should hang out with that guy and just help him a bit because oh man he just he was one of those people you just go seriously it's hard to tell whether you're asking for all the bullying or whether they're just doing it to you and when you get good people giving a kid like that a hard time you just kind of go there's something weird going on there but I used to say uh, well I said in this lesson of the good kids I said look you really should 
why don't you just hang out with him a bit? You know, he's probably uh, the school's version of a leper. <laughs> and they didn't want to. And the reason why they didn't want to is because if you hung out with him, some of his uncleanness gets on you and other kids in the school will start riding off and it becomes really, really difficult. What have uh, Jesus and the disciples been doing? Well, they've been hanging out with lepers so far in Mark, tax collectors, Gentiles, uh, menstruating women, corpses. They're just hanging out with a whole bunch of people that are kind of bad people. And they're kind of bad in the Pharisees' eyes because they've been with these people. Now, the Pharisees actually believe that if you went to the market to buy veggies or something for dinner and you brushed into some unclean people, you should actually go home and clean yourself up and, and, uh, and wash yourself properly because you get unclean by contact with them if you go right back into the uh, torah which is the first five books of the old testament the books of moses uh, the regulations on washing were actually for priests not for everyone Um, and so what the, uh, the the pharisees were doing was transferring that stuff through their oral tradition uh across to everyone now i've just got to explain this bit to you in terms of the Pharisees, they had two kind of sets of regulations. They had the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, and they also had the Mishnah, right? The Mishnah was an oral tradition, and the purpose of the Mishnah was to interpret the Torah and make it cover things that the Torah specifically didn't cover. Does that make sense? So it was much more extensive. Now, it wasn't God's word, but it was the tradition of the elders that kind of applied all of the stuff from the Torah to people's lives. And this hand-washing thing was one of them. And the big idea behind this washing thing is that when you do something with an unclean person or you do something unclean, you have to do something to get clean again. And they set up this system to actually get clean. Ironically, their system to actually get themselves clean, according to Jesus, actually took their heart further away from God even though they thought what it was actually doing was actually making um, themselves pure and better and gooder, if I can say that. Now, anyone know where the term hypocrite actually comes from? A hypocrite, back in the day, this is the first century day, a hypocrite was an actor. So if you went to, the, to a drama or a play at the theatre, you would watch a, a hypocrite. So the, the way a hypocrite would work is they would be an actor in a play and they would come out with a mask and they would wear that mask. Sometimes they'd wear several masks and by the end of the play, you'd probably get a bit of an idea as to who the person was behind the mask. That was kind of how the drama actually worked. So apply that to, um, to the modern day. What's a hypocrite? Well, a hypocrite is someone who has a mask and acts in a way that is inconsistent with who they are on the inside. And they want other people to think they're a particular type of person. Does that happen in the church? That people wear different masks so that others will think they're a certain type of person? No, it doesn't happen in the church, does it? Listen to this great quote from uh, Jonathan Edwards about hypocrisy. Joy consists in the sweet entertainment their minds have in the view or contemplation of the divine and holy beauty of these things, the character of God, as they are in themselves. If that's double dutch to you, listen to this next sentence. He explains it. And this is the main difference between the joy of the hypocrite and the joy of the true saint. The hypocrite rejoices in himself. The true saint rejoices in God and in God's character. Do you see that? The hypocrite's really impressed with their own performance. Their heart actually is a long way away from God. Their heart is connected with their performance and their own ability to get pure rather than being connected to God. 
Jesus is saying here in Mark 7, it's, it's um, not only is their hand-washing thing not true according to the Torah, but what was actually happening is they were setting aside God's Word so that they could follow their tradition. And when you default to human tradition as opposed to God's Word, your heart is far from Him. Let's just see how it works. Now, we don't talk about human tradition and I assume after church the last few weeks hasn't been massive conversations about the Mishnah. All right? Anyone? I mean, I'll pray for you later if you have, because that would be weird. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it, we're not having these conversations about the tradition of the elders. But does our culture, does the project culture have some traditions in it that are part of our culture that sometimes supersede the Bible? Maybe. Maybe. Oh, we'll just see. Because here's the thing, when you default to human tradition as opposed to God's word, your heart's far from him. So let's ask the question, what traditions do we actually have um, that might actually take place in the project or in churches in general that actually go over and above the word of God? Now, some of you, um, you're asking right now, you're saying, Peter, please, can you help us? Give us some examples. (laughs) Is that right? Please, I need you to help us. So, you know what, I'm going to give you some examples, all right? And um, I'm going to start with me and I'll tell you something that I'm hip- hypocritical about and then I'll give you a few examples and then we're just going to go around the whole room. And, no, <laughs> not really. Here's the first one. Praying in public. I used to pray in public and I still struggle with it sometimes. I'll be straight with you. I used to pray in public. It sounds like it's the dumbest thing. And here's the thing, when you start bringing out hypocritical things they always sound dumb when you bring them out loud it's only when they're quiet that they sound like they're a really good plan do you know what i'm saying it's like that with some people you go you said what like you think that's a good idea it's like well it sounded good when i was thinking about it and this is one of those um praying in public i used to pray in a group mostly so i could get the ums and the ahs from other people listening to me true but just oh man and seriously can't you can't you just roll out the words oh the sovereignty of god the kingdom, oh, the kingdom God, and we just repent, and the crowd's in rapturous applause, you know, while I'm praying here. And listen, what's the human tradition then? The human tradition is praying in a group means you're holy. You know, sometimes the tradition is not praying in a group means you're holy. And so we do stuff to try and look holy and to look good. All right, I'm going to give you a chance to really criticize me here. All right, give you a shot at me. Do you think I'm close to God when I'm doing that or not? Not close. Where is my heart? What am I close to? Myself. Yeah, I've got a real heart for myself, but not really anyone else or anything else. Everything else is kind of a pawn for me so that I can get the thing that I actually want. What's the remedy? Some of you might be going, that's it. I'm never praying in public again. Well, you know what? If you say that, you're kind of doing the same thing, but just in reverse. It's like, I want to appear holy. So I'm not going to pray. So you're kind of in a, it's a bit of a double bond. But let me encourage you with this. Pray in public, just don't make it a speech. It's not a speech. You talk to God. He's your father. He's, you, you talk to Jesus, he's personal. He's very, very close to you. I mean, there was a time for me where I, I literally, I think for about 12 or 18 months, I stopped praying in public because I just thought, I am so addicted to this thing. I just can't even get this right. Like even if I had a week where I thought, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good this week. I think I can pray in public this week. I'd, just, I'd get halfway through and I'd just be slipping straight back into it, right? So I think there's a, there's a good argument that you might kind of fast from some things 
some cultural things just to try and break it, um, which is what I did. All right, that's, that's enough of me. So let's talk about us. What about this one? No self-disclosure. Some of you are passionate about not disclosing your need because you want to look good. You want to look strong. You don't want to look needy. So we have altar calls, and I'm just telling you, this has happened, all right? And I'm not implicating anyone except for everyone. Um, <laughs> we have altar calls here, and you know what people come up and say to me after altar calls, or I hear about pretty regularly? You know, I really would have liked to have gone up, but I just felt like if I went up the front, I would have just cried. And I kind of go, so? Psalmist cries a lot, it appears to me, in the Psalms, you know. And I'm not, look, listen, some of you are going, oh, is he saying we've got to come forward to altar calls? Is that how we be holy? No, I'm not saying that either. <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? I'm really just saying you don't have to try and look strong because that is kind of the human tradition, isn't it? Have everything under control means that you look good. Don't be needy. Isn't that the human tradition? What's the proximity to God for someone who doesn't want to be needy? They're closer a long way away. They're a long way away. Ironically, it's the people who are really needy who get really close, isn't it? But yet, our human tradition kind of says, if I look strong and in control and not needy, I'm going to look better. But you know, in God's eyes, he's going, no, you get really needy and you'll be close to me. So what's the remedy? Just admit your need and ask for help. Some of you go, well, that's pretty simple. We'd, I didn't have to come to church to know that. That's right. Most of the church is about that, right? About you not needing to hear stuff that I say, but you just need to be reminded of it. It's nothing new. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the fact that people should boast in their what? In their weakness. Yeah. So let's just get to be a really good church that does it. Like, we don't need to have people kicking around, acting like they're strong all the time. We need people who are just being transparent um, and that doesn't mean you've got to stand up now and confess all your internal sins from the last week to everyone, right? But let's just be a church where we're straight with each other and we're transparent about stuff because you know what? We're going to get close to God when we do that. What about this one? This is one I think is hilarious. I, I can be out just at the shops or something, right? And I'll meet someone from church who's just doing something. Like it's just kind of, it's not related to anything. We're just, hey, how you doing? It's, you say good day, and they're telling me about their flea treatment on their dog or something and then all of a sudden <laughs> they're telling me why they weren't at church on Sunday do you get what I'm saying and I'm just kind of going oh that's weird it's like somehow and I'm not if you've ever done this like you're not it's not like you know go straight to hell do not pass go do not collect $200 in terms of Sunday go but my point here is what are they doing well what they're actually doing is pete's going to think that i'm a bad person because i wasn't at church so i'm just going to have to dig myself out because he knows because he sits up the back with the roll and he marks absentees and those here you with me now listen i want to get this straight i don't want you to come to church because it makes you good i want to i want you to come to church because it's good for you and there's a difference if you can't be at church it's okay all right. So if we end up talking about something completely random that has nothing to do with church and you weren't at church on Sunday, don't feel like you have to try and make yourself look good in front of me. If you weren't at church on Sunday and you weren't there for a few Sundays, I'll start to think you're missing out on some good stuff. And that's not just because I preach. <laughs> All right. I think the worship leading this morning was great. I just think it's good to sing songs to the Lord. It's good to be together, isn't it? You know, and that's, God said that's one of the channels of grace 
that he's going to pour his help through. So if you're not going to be here, you're not going to get the help. It's kind of how it works. So come to church and build your love for Jesus. So what's the human tradition? If I go to church, it makes me a better person, especially if you're talking to the pastor. I don't know who that is, but assuming that we've got one, uh, it would make you a better person. Um, proximity to God, is it close to God or a long way away? It's a long way away, all right? It's, it's far away, it's keeping up appearance. The remedy, just come and come to church. If you can't be at church, don't be at church. But just come and like, be helped by it. it doesn't, just because you showed up today doesn't make you a good person. But it'll make you a better person by coming because I think God actually does stuff in church and that's why we have it. What about this one? This is the last one, I'll, uh, then I'll move on. Telling people you're praying for them when you're not. Who does that? Uh, you don't have to put your hands up. You know what I'm talking about? Hey, brother, I'm praying for you, brother. And you know within five minutes, that person's just gone. It's evaporated, you know? It's kind of like a soft drink. All the fizz has gone out of it. And you, just, you never pray about it. I don't know. Some of you, you're looking at me, you're just going, no, it's on the girl, you're the only one who does this. You know, and sometimes, let's be honest, there's sometimes we say stuff like that and we actually don't have much intention to pray for someone, do we? Or we're really forgetful. Now, I'll tell you, if you're really forgetful, it's a nice thing, it's a good thing to pray for someone, isn't it? Is that right? Okay. So let's, let's do that. Now, if you know you're really forgetful, you're just going to have to get really good at keeping a diary or having some kind of reminder list or something. And you don't have to commit to praying for someone for 30 years. That's a good thing to do too. But... The amount of people that you bump into, I mean, you're not going to be good for anything else other than praying. If you're praying for all those people that you accumulate over all of your life for, till the day that you die. Is it nice to tell someone that you're praying for them? Is it? Yeah. yeah. Is it nice to do that when you're not actually thinking about doing it and you just want them to think well of you? Yeah. That's not very loving at all. It's very self-loving, but it's not loving them. And the irony is that we can think that we're being spiritual, but the reality is that we're not very close to God at all. We're really thinking about ourselves. You know what I think you should do? Let's pray for him. Let's pray for him. Pray for him once and just tell him you prayed for him. Send him a text and just say, hey, I just prayed for you. Instead of going, I'm praying for you. I don't even know what that means. Is that a 30-year commitment or a 30-second commitment or 30-minute? I don't know. Connect with them later on. Tell them what you prayed for. Ask them how things went. Ask them what to pray for. That's the first bit of hypocrisy, the nature of hypocrisy. Number two, the tactic of hypocrisy. I'm just going to read this. It's a little long, but I want to explain this. Um, And Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honour your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things that you do. All right, hang with me for a few minutes. I've got to explain this and then we'll get down to the application of it. What's going on here is that the Jews actually came up with a system where someone could actually vow something to God, retain it until they died, profit from it and not have to give any to their parents that's kind of how the system worked okay Uh, and it was this thing that was called uh, Corbin it was kind of a bit like someone could will their um, something that they own to God 
And after they'd willed it to God, it meant that they didn't have to give anything to anyone else, but they would retain ownership of it until they died. Um, and really what it was, is it was a way for them to keep the benefits of their possessions without having to give it to their parents. That's really what was going on. So let me give you an example here. Have a look on the screen there. You can see the first one on the left there. An example would be something like this. A man has a block of land, right? And there's proceeds coming from it. He doesn't want his parents to get the money of the proceeds from it. And the Torah, the Old Testament, says that you need to honour your father and your mother. So to stop his parents from getting the proceeds of his land, what he does is he declares his land Corbin, or he vows it to God. As soon as he does that, he retains control of the land and his parents are not allowed to have any of the profits from it. Do you see what's going on here? So they don't benefit at all from his possessions. So I hope you can see here, the real issue here is what the person wants is driving the law and their interpretation of the law. If you go back to, um, if you just work within the Torah itself, the first five books of books of Moses, you can see that um, the Pharisees have devised this Corbin thing from probably from something, either Leviticus 27, 28 or a verse very similar to it, but no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast or his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. So it looks like what they've done is they've grabbed that and they've made this rule about this Corbin thing so that you can vow it to your parents. And what it's actually done is it's set up a contradiction in the Bible, in the Torah, so that people couldn't actually fulfill another part of the Torah. Uh, so if you look at Exodus 20 verse 12, honour your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, is everyone with me so far? I was thinking about this. And I thought, early in the week, when I thought, well, that is, that's, I mean, you've got to get, you got to give them points for that. That's, that's pretty, yeah, it is very clever. A lot of uh, ingenuity there, right? It's like, yeah, well done, fellas. You've done really well. So what they've actually done is they've split God's word so that God's word plays off against itself so that they can get the thing that they want. That's what's going on here, all right? And I sat down and I thought, wow, that's, that's clever. Then I thought, I wonder, I wonder whether we even do that. And, um, and I thought, and I thought, no, I, I, this is in the early stages. I'm going, no, I, I, I don't think. We we'll probably don't do that too much. I, I did it, clearly. Uh, and then I thought, all of a sudden, it was like a flood came. You know, and I'm just going, I think we do this all the time. Uh, we split up the Bible and we take the bit that suits us and play it off against the other bits that don't suit us. So what I want to do is give you a few examples of this. And you may not like this. And the reason why you may not like this is what tends to happen in our hearts is the thing that we idolise, the thing that's most important in our hearts, as a person who's a Christian, tends to really like to grab a hold of religiosity to justify itself. All right? And that's kind of what goes on. You kind of grab the scriptures and you run them with scriptures and you know there's a whole bunch of scriptures that you're not dealing with because they're not speaking to your idol. They're not helping you to be justified in the direction that you're going. Um, so it's a little bit sticky because all of these things, at some level you want to be doing these things, but um, you can just, they just get hijacked by the uh, motivation behind it. Here we go. Here's the first one. I'll start with personal confession again. This probably would have been about um, 
hair. It would have been about well over 10 years ago, I would think. I literally thought this. The Bible says uh, that God loves a cheerful giver. I'm not a cheerful giver. So that means I don't have to be generous. <laughs> Do you see that? So I've grabbed that verse and I've played it off against all the other verses in the Bible about generosity. Some of you are going, we're not going to him for a loan if he's that kind of guy. I've grabbed God loves a cheerful giver. I've played it off against all the other verses about generosity and cancelled all of them out. Instead of looking at the whole, I cancelled all of them out. Now, Jesus says, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. At that moment, I'm in it for me. That's what I'm in it for. I want my thing, and I'm going to use God's words to justify what I'm doing so that I can get what I want, and I'm going to cancel out a whole bunch of things that God says. Okay. Everyone with me on that? Let me give you a couple more, just because you asked. Um, what about this one? Preferring my family over being part of God's family. Here's, here's a big one. There's a lot of people, I think, in the church, and it's counter to culture, so there's something about it that's good that are very, very ultra-dedicated to their families, okay, and to their marriages. We're big on families and we're big on marriages. There's no question about that at all. But I think that we go close to uh, having some kind of family idolatry in the church. Because what people do is they kind of go, God wants me to be a good husband, a good wife. God wants me to be a good father, a good mother. And if I need to cut stuff that has to do with what God's doing, I'll just cut it so that we can be a good independent family. Because that's what God wants me to do. Is everyone with me? Now the thing is, let me tell you this, I don't think God ever wanted you to have a completely independent, well-functioning family. I think God wanted you to have a well-functioning family that's within his family. That's what he wants. And so this whole thing that you'll face off, um, my family and what God's called me to do as a husband or a wife or a father or a mother against these other things in, God's, in the Bible where God's saying, I want you to be in my family is a real issue. And I think it makes it really difficult and, it's, and can be, I think, a real slap in the face for people who are single in the church. When you think about that, it's like, married people with families or just married people just going no god wants me to be a really good husband and wife and so i'm not going to be part of the stuff that you're doing now i'm not saying that there aren't times where you just need to invest in your family okay but i am saying that if over an extended period of time you don't get to come to church for six weeks because you're looking after your family all the time or you don't ever go and be part of community and just be close with people um, who love jesus because you've got to be doing family stuff all the time you've probably got it out of balance all right, because I don't think God wants you to get that all sorted out and squared away as an independent unit. It's got to be part of His actual family. What about this one? This is a beauty. People say uh, this. They say um, the Bible says to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within you, and they use it as a cover for them not wanting to ex- actually ever bring up stuff to do with Jesus with people who don't know Jesus. You with me? It's kind of like. Well, I'm going to be ready. When someone asks me about Jesus, I'm going to be ready. And that's what Jesus wants me to do. He just wants me to wait. I'm just going to live out my Christianity and I'm going to wait until someone asks me a question. Does anyone think of any other passages in the Bible where God says, just, can you just get out there and just start telling people about me? You know, it's like there's a lot of people they are going to have a really good 45-minute sermon for that poor sucker who asked them the first time around, can you tell me why you do what you do? It's like, good, I've got four points, an introduction, a conclusion and some application along the way. Let's, uh, let's get into it. 
So that's another example where it's like you grab one verse and you play it off against other verses that say get out and preach the gospel. I mean, do you seriously think Paul was the kind of guy that was sitting around all the time waiting for people to ask him questions? I don't think so. <laughs> was he? He was like, well, sometimes he probably was, but you know, he wasn't like that all the time. And you can see there, and I don't, if you've ever done this, you're with me, but the truth is that you can use that scripture because you're gutless, right? And a bit of a, bit of a coward. Um, heard this one before. Uh, I don't give to the church financially because the Bible says that if you don't look after your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Now, the person who I um, heard this from was quite wealthy and his family was quite wealthy. And he was basically saying whenever they were going to go out for dinner um, or do something as a family, he felt like he had the responsibility to pay for them. And so instead of giving money to the church, he'd pay for the family. Do you get what I'm saying? Now, that scripture is really kind of saying, listen, if you're giving all this cash to the church and you're not looking after your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever if they're in a destitute, drastic situation. Okay? And if there's someone like that at the church here and it's just like they're giving us you know, $10,000 a week and their family's living in a cardboard box you know, on, in a park somewhere, we'd just be going up to them and saying, stop giving the money and go and look after them. You need to go and look after them. That's your priority right now. But that's another example where you can grab a Bible verse, you can split it apart from the rest of the Bible and use it to trump other parts of the Bible. What about this one? You don't want to make moral calls with your friends and the scripture that you quote is this one. The Bible says not to judge other people. So it's not right. Now listen, it's important not to judge other people, but the Bible does say you'll know them by their fruit. And the Bible also records lots and lots of occasions where God's people stood up against injustice of the day. So that's another one where you can make it sound like your heart's with God, but really you're just after a bit of self-protection. And we could go through probably lots of different examples like that. I hope you get the sense of what I'm talking about there. A couple more, just quickly. Another one, this is another probably self-confession. I've given 10% of my wage. That's all I have to give according to the Bible. Yet your heart can be way away from God. It's like, what do I just have to do to get over the line? I don't want to read or memorize those other Bible verses that talk about being generous and whatever God puts on your heart to do. God wants me to be a good father or mother so I can't follow God where he leads because it might endanger my family. I wonder how you go with that. I was thinking about that this week. What about if God actually wants you to go somewhere and it could hurt your family? Is that even an option for you? Do you trust God with your family? You see, God actually calls people and their families to risky places and he promises it will be good. You only have to look at Abraham for that. Anyway, so let's be careful about the way that we use Scripture and when we split Scripture up. Number three, the undoing of hypocrisy. Jesus is kind of saying, listen, this is how hypocrisy works. Then he's kind of going, listen, here's the tactic and the strategy that sits in hypocrisy. And now what he's going to do is he's just going to say, listen, it's just a waste of time. You shouldn't spend all this energy and this time working out these strategies and plans to look pure and to look good uh, because you're all the same here we go jesus said this there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of the person are what defile him 
and down a little bit. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Nothing more needed on that. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. Jesus says at the end here, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus is saying everyone is on the same starting blocks. Everyone is on the same page. Can I show you a quick clip from 60 Minutes from Liz Hayes? Uh, I'll just roll it. Is not a bad person, just someone who made a very stupid, tragic mistake. Her foolish decision cost a life and she's paying for it dearly. Off her head on drugs, Lynette got behind the wheel of a car and ploughed into a cyclist, a family man whose life couldn't have been more different to hers. You missed uh, the name at the start, but she said Lynette Sattelidge is not a bad person. No, Liz, she is a bad person. This is what Jesus is saying. The killing of the cyclist may be an unintended consequence of Lynette Sattelidge, but the taking of drugs was because she was evil at a heart level she's evil and this is part of the problem with morality for us at the moment is that everyone's making mistakes and no one except for the worst criminals are actually evil you see in our day in our culture at the moment you either need to be an abuser a murderer a terrorist or a pedophile to be evil and what jesus is saying here to all the people that would have their little strategies about hypocrisy is look you're all evil (laughs) a lot of you There's no exceptions. And this is the undoing of hypocrisy because no one can hide. Have you ever had that moment where um, you look at someone and you go, well, maybe, maybe they're the exception. Maybe they've got it all together. Maybe they're not like me. Has anyone ever had that? And you just kind of go, it's like I can't even talk to them, you know, because someone, some angel somewhere is going to start singing, like when I get close to them. Do you get what I'm saying? And you just think they're just completely unlike me they're unlike everyone else well you know what here's the good news for you and this is what jesus is saying here today they're not unlike you and they're just as evil as you are some of you going hang on is he calling me evil well kind of in our uh, society in the mental health profession um you know the mental health profession of our day tries to take the stigma away from people by saying they're mentally ill right they're sick well jesus takes the stigma away from people by saying everyone's sick do you see that it's a big difference you are terminally sick terminally sick and your heart is what defiles you not your behavior your heart is the moral center of your body your body cannot make you sin a headache doesn't make you sin lack of sleep doesn't make you sin no one else can make you sin doesn't matter what they do they can't make you sin your heart is the thing that sins So if you look at this diagram here, your heart's in the middle there. Your heart is comprised of will or desires, feelings, emotions and thoughts, the mind. And you can see there that everyone's heart exists within a bodily context and a societal or relational context. The only part of that diagram that can sin is the heart. 
the body can't sin your heart can do something with your body that's sin but the body itself cannot sin and relationships cannot make you sin it's always your heart that is the controlling moral center of your life there is no other moral center now let me just say it when you don't get enough sleep i'm probably a far worse sinner than when i do but it's not the lack of sleep that's the sin it might be someone else's sin that causes a lack of sleep but it's not the lack of sleep that's a sin it's what my heart does with the lack of sleep that's the sin and it's i think it's really difficult for us because it's it's really hard firstly to see what's going on in people's hearts and our society doesn't punish people and you can't punish people for what's happening in their heart true we punish for their behavior behavior is the thing that we see and so our instinct is to kind of go someone's a bad person because of their behavior and i would suggest to you that's not so their bad bad behavior expresses the badness that's resident in their hearts I don't think I've got time to show you this, but this was a uh, 60 Minutes um, story from last Sunday night. And this guy physically abused his wife over a long period of time and um, almost killed her on a few occasions. And uh, he was basically went on there to tell everyone how bad it was to do stuff like that. But do you know what was interesting in the interviews? He ducked in and out the whole way through the, ad- through the interview between him being responsible and him talking about it almost from a heart point of view to then talking about um, kind of behavior and distancing himself a little bit from the behavior to then talking about his wife and saying that in that particular context he was an abuser and that obviously the reporter got onto that and just gone really are you going to say that that your wife's responsible for you almost killing her three times but that's kind of the nature of what goes on for us is this mixture isn't it of like I think you caused it and then of course Tara's in there and she's kind of saying you're an evil controller and she's trying to get down to the heart thing about what's actually going on in the guy's heart but in doing so is labeling the guy it's like you're an evil controller and it's just a really interesting um, story in that regard to see that dynamic kind of playing out that man is worse than an abuser he's an idolater he exchanges the glory of god for something else that he wants and then he becomes a slave to it that's the most serious part of his sin am i saying that abusing his wife is not serious i'm saying it's very serious i'm just saying that what's going on in his heart what comes out in his abuse of his wife is actually coming out of a far worse evil and that's that he's exchanged the glory and the goodness of god for something that he wants and that's actually how you get sexual immorality theft pride evil thoughts coveting wickedness deceit sensuality envy slander pride and foolishness that's just how it works you want something and all those things just kind of are the fruit of the thing that you want here's the uh the quick flow chart there you can see at the top there and this is something we talk about at the project that everyone's created as an unceasing worshiper you're a fire hose stuck on and the only thing that you're sure about is not whether you're going to be able to turn it off because it's stuck is just where you're going to squirt the water and that's kind of what it's like for you as an unceasing worshiper is that god made you to worship all the time he didn't make you to worship he made you worshiping and so you love seek sacrifice for obey pursue desire all of those things are worship things and you're going after something all of the time now when that's not god when an imposter comes in and rules your heart that's when it becomes really really messy you see when you worship god no one who's worshiping jesus abuses their wife 
No one who's worshipping Jesus uh, gossips. No one who worships Jesus does dot, dot, dot. And I'm not talking about what you say you worship. In that moment, no one who's worshipping Jesus does those things. What happens? An imposter comes in and rules your heart. You worship, you love, you desire, you want something that's not God. And you become a slave to the imposter because you always worship, sorry, you always serve what you worship. And what happens is you end up obeying that imposter and you end up becoming corrupted and you end up with sinful behaviour. That's how it works. I want to just highlight the difference between these two and then uh, we're going to finish uh, with the last point and a video. In the circles I move in, um, there's a lot of conversation about free will and free choice. And I want to say to you that the way that most people understand free will and free choice is that you can choose whatever you want. And I want to suggest to you today that you don't have free will and free choice in that sense. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. You didn't choose your gender. You didn't choose how tall you were going to be. You didn't choose where you are going to be born. NBA finals are on at the moment. None of you are playing in it. All right? You might go home and say, I want to work really hard because I want to be in the finals. You know what? You're probably not going to make it. Okay? And I'm not, some of you go, that's a bit harsh. Well, none of us are going to make it, right? Because if we were good enough, we'd probably be over there playing for the Golden State Warriors at the moment. Okay? There's a lot of stuff that you actually don't have free, free, free choice over. So you don't actually have an ability to choose anything. You know this old line that people say, oh, you can be whatever you want to be. It's crap, right? You can't, okay? You just can't. It's just really dumb. It's a nice thought, but it's, it's just dumb. It's like someone a four-foot-high adult puts their hand up and they say, I want to be in the NBA. You just go, well, you don't have free choice there, champ. All right? Unless you're really good on stilts. You don't have free choice. No one is in the position to choose whatever they want. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. On the left is free agency. I am a massive believer in free agency. What's that? I do believe you have the freedom to choose. I do believe that you can act without compulsion from without. But... I think that all of your choices operate within the context and the constraints of your nature and your character. Do you see that? You always choose stuff that's in line with your nature and your character. A person exercises volition according to their character. So this is really bad news. Because <laughs> you know what Jesus has just said? is He's just said, your nature is just messed. It's tragic and it's evil. You're in a whole lot of strife. So God himself would say, yeah, you've all got free agency, but everything that you would always choose would be according to this nature and it's just going to take you to the pit. Is everyone with me? What's the remedy for hypocrisy? Well, I've got good news for you. It's out of Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 27. Listen to this. This is a statement about the new deal, the new covenant that God was going to bring about through Jesus dying on the cross. Listen to what he's going to do. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. Who'd like that? Yeah. Cool. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Who'd like that? Yeah, come on. That would be good, wouldn't it? And I'll give you, what? A new heart 
and a new spirit I'll put within you. What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to give you a new nature. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a new nature. Yeah, you got this old one. And some of you along the way have been going, hang on, hang on, hasn't God given me a new heart? And you'd be right. Because something's changed, hasn't it? Who here knows, who, who follows Jesus, who here knows that there's things that you used to like when you weren't a Christian that you don't like now? Anyone? That's a new nature. Has he forced you into doing those things? I don't think so. What he's done is he's changed what you like. And that is the great hope of the gospel. It's not that God's going to force us to behave better. Not that God's saying, you behave better and I'm going, to help the Holy, I'm going to get the Holy Spirit to help you to behave better. But God's saying, I'm going to change what you like. And anyone who's stuck in an addictive pattern, this is good news for you. And I actually think probably all of us are stuck in some kind of addictive pattern. Because the big problem that you have is like, I really love this thing that's killing me. I really love this thing that's destroying me. And the great news that I can proclaim to you today that you already know is that God's come to work on your desires. Listen to what else Ezekiel says. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Yeah. But you know, you know what we're left with? This is wonderful news. But we're left with the, re- the, the reality, aren't we, of indwelling sin. You know, some people say, God's given you a new heart. I've had this said to me before. They say, God's given you a new heart and all the sin, that's not you anymore. Well, I'm telling you, it's still you. Okay, I disagree with the person who said that to me. Uh, and there's some authors that write stuff like that. I just don't think that carries true. I think it is you. But I do think that theologically we live in the now and the not yet. That God has started something and it's not yet complete. And so it's different now. And so we do want things that aren't right, sorry, that are right, when, and we don't want the things um, that weren't right. It's the great hope of the gospel that God's going to keep working on that in us and complete that one day. I'm going to finish with this clip uh, from uh, 60 Minutes. And what I want you to notice as you watch this is just listen to the rhetoric, the talk about the heart um, and what they say about the heart. I mean, it's just a beautiful clip. It really impacted me on Friday when I was preparing the message. I remember when I first heard about young Dujon Zamet. Like you, I thought, what a waste. What a dreadful waste. He was just 20 years old. There he was one moment having the holiday of his life on the Greek island of Mykonos. The next, he was being bashed senseless by a nightclub bouncer. And then came that terrible decision for his parents to turn off his life support system. But despite their grief, the Zamets were certain of one thing. Their son would not be forgotten, and he won't be. Tonight, an emotional journey as Oliver and Rosemary Zamet go back to Greece and meet the people Dujon saved. As night falls over Athens, two families meet. Strangers from across the world, now linked forever by a powerful bond. I I think he chose you. I think. 
You look very good. I am. I'm glad. I am. In their darkest hour, Rosemary and Oliver Zammett gave Costas Gribulus the gift of life. Inside Costa's chest beats the heart of their murdered son, Dujon. At the same time, across the Aegean Sea in Athens, doctors were telling 31-year-old Costas Gribulus he was dying. The doctor said to me that your heart is not good, it's not well, it's not healthy. Costas, a journalist, was born in Australia but came to Greece 20 years ago. Late last year, he was struck down with cardiomyopathy, a fatal viral heart condition. To live, doctors said, he needed a transplant. You knew for you to live, somebody had to die. Oh. Yes, unfortunately. That's a really difficult thing I know. That's the hardest chapter in this book of my life. For me, the um, Zamet family is my family too. You feel that way? Yes. It's only 25, 26 days, but I feel them as a family. I haven't seen them, I haven't spoken with them, but I feel really, really, really close with them. This is the moment the Zamet family has been so desperately wanting. I, I think he chose you. You look very good. I am. I'm glad. I am. It's bittersweet. Utter sadness at the loss of their son. Joy that his passing has saved others. I'm too, I thank you. And I'm really, really, really sorry about your loss. But um, I'm glad that I'm fine now. And this is the first time that I'm touching my heart, my chest. Really? The first time. I'm so glad that out of Dujon's passing, he saved four people and helped four people. And that's the best thing that's come out of this tragedy. So I'm so glad that you received his heart, Costa. Me too. I know that's really hard for you. Really, really hard. I know that there's no words that you can describe it. But the only thing that I can do is promise you that I'm going to look after it. I'm sure you will. Jesus would uh, say to all of us, your heart is not good. It's not healthy. For you to love, it's to live, somebody had to die. Do you see the parallels? The donor here was bashed senseless and brutally murdered. Inside Costa's chest beats the heart of their murdered son, Dujon. You know what happened on the cross? Is Jesus became an organ donor. And you know, he's not upset about that. 
He's very happy about that. He's very glad. He's like this donor family. He's very glad that you've got a new heart. He likes that. And if you're here today and you don't love Jesus, you need a new heart. You've got a terminal heart disease. And Jesus gives freely to people like you. I think the way that Costas ends that interview is precious. He says, the only thing I can say is that I'm going to look after it. That's what Jesus wants you to do. It cost him a lot. Just look after it.